0: life. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Aging Fearlessly podcast. You know, as humans, we're blessed with the five senses, sight, touch, smell, hearing, and taste. And these senses help us to navigate our world by sending messages to our brain so that we can interpret the world around us. Many of us take these senses for granted until something goes wrong. And today in the studio, I have Dr. Jenny Danks, who's an ophthalmologist from Peninsula Eye Centre in D.Y. And we're going to discuss eyes and eye health. So welcome, Dr. Danks. I'm going to call you Jenny. Thanks for coming in and sharing your knowledge about eyes and eye health.
1: Thank you, Karen. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I know this isn't something you normally do, but I think it's really important for people to understand about their eyes because some people might be a little bit nervous about asking the questions, what's going on with my eyesight? But first of all, what is the role of an ophthalmologist?
1: So, I mean, ophthalmologists, I mean, we're passionate about eyes. It's really interesting. A lot of patients actually try and explain to us why their vision is important. And I always find it (laughs) a little bit... I don't know, kind of interesting, you know, like you are telling an eye doctor why it's important to see. (laughs) But everybody has a different reason as to why they're so passionate about their vision or why it's so important to them. So an ophthalmologist is a doctor. We're medical specialists and we treat eye disease, but we also liaise with other doctors if there's problems with the eyes that relate to other specialties. We work in concert with GPs, with optometrists, and they refer patients to us. And we're involved in a much broader sense in the community. So we're involved with teaching, we teach future ophthalmologists, we teach nurses, optometrists, medical students. And we're also involved in the planning of eye care in the community. And through the college and various groups, we advocate with government and we try and make sure that eye care is important and that patients' interests are represented.
0: Yeah, it is a. It is like our eyes are so important. We do see the world and. Um, through our eyes. And every eye is different, I'm sure. And when you look at someone's eyes, they're different. They're different in color. They're different in shape. It's amazing just what the eye can do.
1: Yeah, there is, there's an enormous amount of variation. There's a wide range of different diseases that affect the eye. But even within normal eyes, you know, people can be long-sighted, short-sighted, different shapes. There's big variation in the eye socket, obviously color, where your eyelids sit, your whole facial structures, all of that varies.
0: And we take it for granted. So how long does it take to become an ophthalmologist?
1: So to become an ophthalmologist, first of all, you have to do a medical degree. So you go to university. These days that can be an undergraduate or a postgraduate medical degree. And then after you finish university, you have to work as a general doctor in the hospital. And people might do that. It has to be done for a minimum of two years, but it can be anything, two, five, six years and then you have to be admitted to the ophthalmology training program, which is administered through the College of Ophthalmologists, but it actually runs at our public teaching hospitals. So it's a work-based learning environment. So you're at work every day, but you have exams and you have benchmarks and things that you have to do. And that takes five years. Then after that, some people choose to sub-specialize, can you believe? They oh. actually go overseas. I did another two years. So my subspecialty is what we call oculoplastics. So Mm ocular plastic surgery with eyelids, tear ducts, and orbital problems. But there are many different subspecialties.
0: When you go down this path, there is so much to learn because it is a very delicate part of our body.
1: It is. And there's a lot of things to know within the eye and more and more keeps being discovered all the time. You know, genetic eye disease and the treatment of genetic disease is frontier area. There's new drugs that come to market. People will now have probably heard of immunotherapy, which a lot of people have for cancer treatment. That can also be used for autoimmune diseases. There's a lot of interrelationship between the eyes and the diseases of the rest of the body as well. So Mm. we're also involved in that care. Why did you choose eyes? So I think it's interesting. I was always interested in physics. And believe it or not, at school I did optics in my physics sort of elective little project looking at how cameras work and apertures and focus. So that was something I was interested in even back at school. And then through the medical training, I really liked ophthalmology because it was a discrete discipline. It's an opportunity to be quite expert in one area. And obviously just the fact that vision is so unbelievably important And then, you know, probably the final thing is that colour of the blue light. We all just love that cobalt blue.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know, I see people out in the world doing things and not protecting their eyes. And sometimes you're not thinking about how valuable they are to you. You know, you're cutting wood and you're not putting glasses on or you're using some sort of machinery. They're just so valuable in everything we do. Absolutely.
1: I mean, eye protection is absolutely critical and so cheap. You know, any hardware store sells a pair of protective wraparound safety glasses, and you should have them on every single time you hammer metal on metal, every single time you do something that spins, like a whipper snipper, a lawnmower, a grinder, all of these things. I think in the workplace, obviously, welders know how to protect their eyes, but it is just so important. And then Avoiding getting chemicals in your eye. I've seen some blinding chemical injuries and particularly in the workplace, it can be just devastating.
0: Yeah. Well, today we're going to focus on more on the over 50s. And like for me, when I started to hit my 40s, because I had incredible vision and I never took it for granted, but I never, ever saw anyone about my vision until I was in my 40s. And do they call that 2020 vision? It's pretty awesome when you can see everything distance, close, reading's never a problem. But then things started to occur. So, what sort of things do we find with our vision as we move towards our 50s?
1: So, just to define like 2020 vision, that means that you've got normal vision. So, that's 2020 is the American that's in feet. So in Australia, we talk six on six. I mean, the whole world knows 2020, so obviously they accept (laughs) that as well. (laughs) But six metres, a six on six, means that's normal vision. And then depending on where you are on the chart, it's better or worse than that normal level. So normally when we're growing up, our lens can focus for us. So our lens focuses very strongly up close. But gradually through life, the lens gets thicker and the proteins in the lens gradually become less malleable. And there's a tiny little muscle that has to focus that lens. So slowly, those lens proteins become stiffer and that muscle can no longer focus to bring us the near vision that that we grow up with. So that usually happens to people somewhere between about 40 and 50. And for someone who's had good vision, it's
2: really
0: annoying that you then have to put glasses on or wear a contact.
1: It is annoying. There's no doubt about that. I mean, some people are somewhat exempt because they might be a little bit short-sighted and so therefore their natural focus is a little bit closer. But unfortunately for the people who are hypermetropic or long-sighted, they're actually at a disadvantage and they get the symptoms at at an earlier age. Well, I know for me,
0: when I was working and I went to a meeting and I was looking at things up on a board in the distance in the room, and I'd have to take my glasses off because my vision was perfect. And then I'm looking at notes at my desk where I was sitting and I'm going, glasses on, glasses off, until the multifocal. I took on wearing multifocals, which sort of solved that problem. But I still didn't love wearing
1: glasses. Yeah, I think it's a very common problem.
0: (laughs) I'm just a very common person. So when someone comes in to see you, What sort of things are you assessing for?
1: So we like to take the opportunity to assess the eye health when someone attends our practice. And that's really regardless of the reason why they think that they have come to see us because we think it's important to screen for glaucoma and to check the macula for any signs of macular degeneration. We look for cataract. So we like to do a general eye check per se as well as deal with whatever the reason for the the visit is.
0: So Jenny, let's come back in a minute and talk about something you just mentioned, glaucoma and is it macular degeneration? But firstly, let's have a song that's related to eyes. I truly love Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girls. Too funny. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about brown eyes, I think. (laughs)
3: Shippin' and a In the misty morning fog With all our hearts sit thumpin And you, my brown-eyed girl And you, my brown-eyed girl And whatever happened The Tuesday, and so slow a transistor radio, standing in the sunlight laughing, hiding high a rainbow's wall, slipping and sliding, all along the fall with you, a brown eyed girl. Just to sing, sha la la just like that, sha la 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 da, la di da. Grown, I cast my memory back a lot. Sometimes i thinking overcome making love in the green grass, behind the stadium with you, my brown eyed girl. We used to sing». shala la 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 la
0: You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Jenny Danks, who's an ophthalmologist, and we're speaking about eyes and eye health because it is out because our eyes are one of our most important senses. So Jenny, we've been talking about visiting and what you actually do when someone visits your practice and doing a thorough checkup. How often should someone come in to see an ophthalmologist?
1: Well, I think, I mean, eye health is very important throughout life. I know this program is aimed at the over 50s, but children should be screened before they go to school. Mm -hmm. So in New South Wales, we have a preschool STEPS screening program. And that is also equivalent things in other states. So four to five-year-olds should be checked Mm -hmm. so that they have their vision checked. It's a free service and any problems can be identified and referred on to eye care specialists and ophthalmologists. In adults, we think over the age of 40, everybody should have at least one check to see if they have any indication of reasons to be more concerned about their Mm -hmm. eye health then that should be every few years. And then over the age of 60, it should be every year or two. Now, initially someone can be seen by their local optometrist. And if they identify that there is an issue of concern, then they can refer to an ophthalmologist. If someone has a family history, it's particularly important if they have a family history of macular degeneration or glaucoma. Now, the difficulty with glaucoma is that it's asymptomatic. So that means you may have no idea that you have it. There's no symptoms or reasons. People who present with glaucoma when they've actually lost peripheral vision, that is a very late presentation and Mm. we do not want to see that in Australia. We want people to have their eyes checked and for glaucoma to be picked up early and treat it before it causes any loss of vision.
0: Because treatment is ultimately the thing that's going to save their vision, early treatment, early detection.
1: Absolutely, so in glaucoma, the nerve fibers of the nerve gradually die, and we can't bring them back to life. So we need to know that some of them are dying early on. So I think that percentage over the age of 60 is about 3% of the population. So screening is justifiable in terms of a sort of healthcare budget not only to protect vision, but also from a financial viewpoint. If there's a family history, then that percentage can be more like 10% and A lot of it is family
0: history too, isn't it? Genetics, we're more predisposed to getting glaucoma
1: or having glaucoma. And we're understanding more and more about that. In the future, genetic testing will become much more common. Mm -hmm. At the moment, it's only reserved for people who have very severe disease. And the other disease you mentioned was, do you call it a disease,
0: macular degeneration?
1: So yes, macular degeneration is full-term age-related macular degeneration. So it's more common in the over 70s. It is a disease, it starts on the underneath layers of the retina. The macula is the anatomical term that refers to the central part of the retina. And the central part of the retina is the part responsible for your central vision, but in particular your reading vision. So that's the vision that is most at risk. There are two general forms, dry and wet, and some therapies such as antioxidants are very helpful in the treatment and in the prevention of the disease. Mm -hmm. And then some with the wet form of the disease, patients are generally treated with intravitreal injections to reduce the amount of edema and swelling in the retina and to control the amount of disease that and the degree of visual loss. It's
0: quite nerving really what can go wrong with your vision. But again, early detection is the thing. And you mentioned antioxidants. Sometimes there might be some quite simple fixes and then there's obviously the injections that are more, what do you say with Invasive. that? Invasive. Invasive, yeah. I was looking for that word. I sometimes have trouble finding words.
1: Um I think we all do. (laughs) So the antioxidants are very important. I think they're important in a lot of different diseases, not only in eye disease. Mm. They've been proven to be beneficial in macular degeneration. They've got a moderate level of proof in glaucoma. So by antioxidants, we mean lots of colored fruit and vegetables, Mm. and in particular, the dark green leafy vegetables, sort of magic food with respect to eye health. In addition, It's thought that a handful of mixed nuts a week and some deep sea fish are also important. So
0: it can be as simple as just the things you're eating, how important they really are. Because, you know, we forget all of that sometimes. You just go out and think, I'll have a pizza day, I'll have this or that. But these healthy foods that you're talking about are really, really
1: important to even our eyes. I think it's essential for eye health and our overall health. Mm. And... I mean, there's this saying that you can eat your way through your family history. Is that correct? Really? <laughs> and interestingly, like there's it. a couple of eye health, healthy food cookbooks that have been produced. Oh, I really? Macular Disease Foundation published one and Professor Minas Caronia published another.
0: And probably people don't pick these up unless they've actually been diagnosed with the problem.
1: Or they, someone in their family.
0: Or someone in their family, yeah. So they're aware of it. Look, there's other sort of things that... I'm gonna bring in some of the experience that I have had with eyes, but they're not they're not really severe sort of things, but I came in to see you a long time ago and my eye just kept watering and watering and watering and I'd, I'd do this, do that, put drops in your eye, but it was such an easy fix when I came to see you.
1: So, I mean, eyes can water for a number of reasons. Paradoxically, sometimes a dry eye will actually be watery because the surface gets irritated when it's dry, So even dry eye patients can present with watering. Allergies can produce a lot of watering, often with itchiness, but a blocked tear duct can also produce watering. So the little opening of the tear duct on the edge of the eyelid can be enlarged. We can syringe the tear duct. The tear duct normally drains down into the nose. Mm -hmm. Occasionally that tear duct can get infected. Sometimes people actually need intravenous antibiotics in that scenario. And sometimes people actually need surgery to create a much wider passageway of the tear duct into the nose itself. It's quite amazing that little tear
0: duct, and you see, if you pull your eye down, you can see a little like hole. And you think,
1: that really, that's causing all the issue? Yeah, the tear duct, the normal tear duct, it's only about a millimetre in diameter. We normally have one on the top lid and the bottom lid in each eye. So you have four little puncta.
0: I didn't know there was one on the top lid, <laughs> I thought there was only one on the bottom lid. I'm learning a lot here. Another thing that I have been to you about is probably something that's quite common, cataracts.
1: So cataracts are common. And again, particularly over the age of 70, diet, disease, sun can be involved. Sometimes there's a family history, but in general, just the aging of the lens can lead to cataract. Mm -hmm. So if cataract is symptomatic and causing problems and interfering with what people are trying to do in visual function, then cataract surgery can be indicated. When the cataract, it's actually the lens of the eye that gets cloudy. So to remove that lens requires an operation that's done in hospital under local anesthetic. And then when that lens has been removed, we have to replace the lens with an artificial intraocular lens. Those intraocular lenses come in lots of different types. You can have single focus lenses and patients can choose what focus they prefer near or far. There are lenses that give an increased range of focus and there are even multifocal lenses. But coming back to my optics when I learned about cameras, the more you try and do with a lens, the more likelihood you have of causing some what we call aberrations or we're using a little bit less of the light for each image so there can be some degradation to the quality of the image mm-hmm. so it depends on whether you have any other eye health issues and what your lifestyle requirements are and a cataract from my perspective it's only
0: one eye at the moment so it's not like it happens to both eyes at the same time
1: Is you that know it's correct? quite unusual that it can be one eye followed by the other eye probably more commonly both eyes are relatively even but it does vary like all the things we mentioned earlier yeah and it does change your life
0: again if you have to have that surgery and i'm saying if you have to have the surgery because it's not for it, there's a time to have it if
1: is that correct well surgery like every medical decision you know be it medical therapy or surgical therapy everything is a cost benefit analysis in terms of the risk and the benefit. So, you know, what are the difficulties you're having that justify having a procedure and what are the risks of that procedure? So whilst you can have a procedure to remove the lens and put an artificial lens in just to change the focus of the eye, that may not be an appropriate risk for all people. Obviously, if you're having a lot of difficulty seeing and the cataract is functionally impairing, then that can be more justifiable. And so it's a
0: decision between the ophthalmologist and the patient themselves. It's absolutely Yeah, it's absolutely
1: an individualized decision. And the detail of of your eye health and the detail of your lifestyle, the detail of your visual requirements, the detail of what lens might suit you, that all has to be discussed on a one-on-one basis.
0: That's why we go to visit you, Dr. Danks.
1: (laughs) Excellent. <laughs> I've chosen another
0: song for us today. Well, oh, you're going to love this Sexy Eyes by Dr. Hook. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. Well, that was Sexy Eyes by Dr. Hawken. We do love a sexy eye. (laughs) My guest today in the studio is Dr. Jenny Danks, and we're talking about eye health. Jenny, a few years ago, I'm going to go three years ago, I experienced like a flashing light through my eye. It was almost like a lightning bolt. And it went on for a few hours and I was wondering what on earth was going on. It was very annoying. And then later that day, I was driving and I noticed this big film across my eye. Something had changed. Can you explain what might have been happening then? I did seek treatment. But what was going on?
1: So those symptoms that you're describing there, Karen, relate to what we call flashes and floaters. So the flashes can indicate that retina is having some tension on it. So the retina is being stimulated. So inside the eye, behind the lens, the eye is filled with a gel and that is called the vitreous. Now the vitreous was very important before we were born, but later in life, doesn't have a particularly strong role, but it has little fibers that are attached at various points around the retina. So if the vitreous itself moves, it can pull on the retina. Now, sometimes it can actually tear the retina, which then leads to the possibility of a retinal detachment. Mm -hmm. And if the retina, which is the nerve tissue that lines the inside of the eye, detaches, then you can have permanent loss of vision. So we think flashes and floaters are very important, particularly new onset. So we want those patients to present urgently and we want to check the retina. So come in, you see us, we're gonna dilate the pupil so that we can have a very good look at the edge of the retina 360 degrees around the inside of the eye. Mm -hmm. Now, if there is a retinal tear, that might need to be treated with laser But if the retina has already started to have a small area of detachment, sometimes it might need to have some freezing treatment or some gas inside the eye. Or if it's more significant than that, they might need to have an operation with a retinal surgeon. So if the retina unfortunately does actually detach, then people might experience a shadow that's permanently in their peripheral vision. Or if it comes off altogether, there can be loss of vision. So if there's complete loss of vision, including the center, that retina needs to be reattached with an operation within 24 hours. So, if you're like remote Australia, that means get yourself to eye care professional immediately. And really, if you're right in the middle of nowhere, that would be justification for calling the flying doctor, in my opinion.
0: Wow. It's really like taking notice of these things and we think, oh, it's just a flash, which I did at the time. It never occurred to me that it was anything serious, but it could have been. It wasn't that serious, but it was, I did go and have it looked at. But It's a warning sign.
1: It is. I mean, the flashing lights can be from other causes. You know, migraine can do various sort of flashes and sometimes there's other neurological things. So, you know, sometimes it's less urgent, but, you know, an ophthalmologist will never be upset with someone for coming because they think there's an urgent problem. We would always rather have a look.
0: Yeah, and so I think it's really important to take note of what's happening within your eye. If you see something that's not, quite the same as it normally is for you, then it's good reason to come and make an appointment.
1: Absolutely. If you notice something abnormal, you need to act on it.
0: And the thing is for an ophthalmologist too, you actually need a referral.
1: Is that correct? So you can have a referral from a GP or from an optometrist. Oh, okay. Either. And both of those referrals through Medicare in Australia are valid for 12 months. If you have a referral from a specialist, that's valid for three months. So sometimes if you come again, for a review later, we might encourage you to get a referral from your GP that will last longer.
0: Well, we live in a very sunny country. How can the sun affect our eyes and our eyesight?
1: So yes, we're all very aware of the risks of sun exposure in Australia. I guess the first thing to say is just to remind everyone about that UV index. You know, the UV is strongest in the middle of the day. So in the summer, that's either side of one o'clock with Daylight Saving. So the things that we worry about in terms of the sun with the eyes, we worry about skin cancers. You can get a skin cancer on your eyelid Mm. or on the surface of your eye. So you can have melanoma as with other parts of your body. You can have non-melanoma skin cancer such as squamous cell or basal cell carcinomas. So these, as I mentioned, can also occur on the surface of the eye and Again, the earlier something is detected, the less invasive the treatment. Also, pterygiums relate to sun and wind exposure. So, a pterygium is a slightly fleshy area of scar tissue and blood vessels that grows across the surface of the cornea. And it's called sailor's eye or windward eye, surfer's eye. So, it's related to sun and wind exposure. So, it's very important to protect our eyes whenever we can. So, a broad brimmed hat provides reduction of 50% of the UV exposure to your eyes. And if you add a pair of rat round sunglasses, you basically get 100% protection.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because you can often see a little pterygium on someone's eye. can't You can see it getting to the coloured part of their eye. They're really, really common, especially where we live. Yes. All those surfers. Particularly
1: the surfers. And it's a particularly, it's a significant problem, the sun exposure, you know, that our young people get. So anytime we can influence them, we should. You know, for me
0: growing up in the 60s and the sun, what we did out in the sun was just horrific when you think about it. There's a lot of my friends that have pterygiums and sometimes they're more noticeable. They get irritated and you can see them. I know the one I have on my eye sometimes gets a bit red and then it just calms down. But
1: yeah, so again, like lubricating drops can be can be helpful and surfers can put quite a sort of thick gel in their eyes even before and after going surfing to protect them.
0: And you mentioned skin cancer on the eyes, but around the eyes, that's something that, it's
1: a, such a delicate part on your eyelids. How can they be treated? So if they're small, they can be excised and then monitored. If they're larger, then sometimes we have to reconstruct the eyelid. So within ophthalmology, we have our subspecialty of oculoplastic surgery where people specialise in eyelid, tear duct and orbital surgery. So our group is called ANZOPRS, Mm A-N-Z-S-O-P-S, which is the Australian and New Zealand Society of Ophthalmic Plastic Surgeons. We have a website where you can look up to find our members. And again, your GP or your optometrist can refer. They generally know the local person, that can help you. So an eyelid reconstruction, it can be a skin graft. It can be that we have to borrow from one part of an eyelid to rebuild another part. Sometimes it can get very complex. Sometimes it involves more of the face and we might need to bring in our plastic surgery colleagues. So it's really quite significant. You know, every year, unfortunately, we would be involved in the care of someone at the public system who where this disease has got out of control you know we do occasionally see it take people's lives
0: it's um again something else to be aware of when you have regular skin checks to be aware because your skin your dermatologist can send you on then to someone who can like yourself Jenny who can actually treat this
1: absolutely and again those people who do the regular skin checks they're usually aware of the people in their area who can assist
0: And us fair-skinned people should always be very aware of what's happening around our eyes and having regular skin checks as well. So that if something like this does happen and we need to see someone like you, we can. So our last song for today is, I Only Have Eyes For You. I really love jazz and Emma Pask has an amazing voice. So I chose this song today. <laughs> Emma Pask, I only have eyes for you. All
4: mm. oh, the stars out tonight I don't know if it's cloudy or bright cause I only have (laughs) Where in a garden all around a crop that I put and the fountain power to the avenue, you I here. And so am I. Maybe millions of people go by, but they all disappear from you and I only have eyes I only have eyes oh baby I only have eyes for
0: back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. I love Emma Pask. What a voice. I first saw her with James Morrison at a venue in the city, The Basement, and I just fell in love with her voice. She was just so engaging and just listening to those runs that she does. Oh, beautiful voice. Dr. Jenny Danks is my guest in the studio today and we're talking about eyes and she is an ophthalmologist. So Jenny, we've talked about sun care. We've talked about a lot of the different things that the over 50s can experience like macular degeneration, glaucoma. We've talked about cataracts. We've talked about general eye care. Let's talk about cosmetics cosmetic surgeries, Botox. What can you tell us about those?
1: So interestingly, even beauty treatment with a lash tint or eye serums can occasionally produce severe reactions. And I have had patients that have required hospitalization. Really? Even with a lash tint, a really severe reaction, which probably in the end was in fact allergic, but just to cover bases, we had to treat as if it could have been an infection. So Nothing in life, unfortunately, is risk-free. So, Botox is commonly used in our community. If Botox is given in too high a dose or too close to the eyelids, then people can end up with a dry eye if they don't blink adequately. They can end up with a droopy eyelid or they can end up with a watery eye if those little tear ducts turn outwards. Yeah. So, Botox generally wears off over three or four months. So if people do have problems, usually that will be reversible. With fillers, fillers are given widely. They're given all over the face. And unfortunately, they do carry small, really severe risks. Yeah. So a filler, you can have a reaction to the filler. But because there's so many different blood vessels that follow from one side of your face all across and join in from the face to the vessels that go further back occasionally the filler can actually lodge and block in a blood vessel so Mm -hmm. you can actually lose vision in the eye as a result of a filler given almost anywhere on the face oh really yeah so there has been examples where it's been remote from the eye the higher risk areas are in the corner of the eye and just sort of in the glabella area just above the in the junction of the eyebrows so rarely i think it's only one in a hundred thousand but it can occur that a blood vessel can become blocked.
0: And what you think is a, a simple procedure that's going to make you
1: perhaps look good, look better, can be quite dangerous to I your mean, eyes. Absolutely devastating if you happen to be that person to whom it occurs. Mm. We try and give an enzyme to dissolve the filler but there's only a couple of occasions on which that has been successful. And those fillers quite often last a long time,
0: don't they, in your face? They can last 18 months or more.
1: They do vary depending on the brand and the location and the amount that's been injected. And they also vary in that the other ingredients in the filler uh, can vary. They sort of can have collagens and other things within the filler itself mm-hmm. such that even when they dissolve little piece of filler on a petri dish or on a scientific experiment, sometimes they are actually residual elements left behind. So it's quite complex area really.
0: And what sort of rules are there about Botox and fillers for the beauty industry?
1: So APRA is the regulator of medical treatments in Australia or medical practitioners and allied health practitioners. So APRA are looking into a review of this whole industry and they're proposing to have different guidelines for the sort of injectables as compared to invasive cutting cosmetic surgery. Mm -hmm. And they're looking into ways to actually more significantly regulate who is allowed to do the various areas of cosmetic Mm -hmm. surgery, what training they should have, and how the community can actually know whether or not the person that they're seeing has a certain level of training. Mm. Because a lot of cosmetic surgery is performed by people who do not specifically have surgical training. ARPA itself has further information of risks and they're updating their website with a lot of this, even in while the detail of the total review is still being formulated. So it is really interesting in that people should
0: actually know what they are putting in their bodies, who is actually – treating them at the time, do they actually know what they're doing and what sort of accreditation
1: do they have? I agree. I mean, have they actually seen the doctor who's prescribing the medication? There's a lot of injectors and my understanding is the doctors are meant to be involved, but certainly from my point of view, it's a lot better if there's a doctor involved and what is the qualification of that doctor and can they treat the problems if there are problems that arise? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I will just also add in that one point there, you know, if you're uncertain about what you should or shouldn't do in this discipline, you know, your GP is always a really good place to go. And it's the draft version of the new guidelines is indicating that people should really see their GPs before they seek certainly invasive cosmetic treatment. Good
0: advice. If people want to find out more about eye health and treatment of
1: eyes, where do they go? So obviously we're fortunate, along with its risks, to have the internet. Yes. <laughs> so the American Academy of Ophthalmology, aao.org, mm-hmm. has a fantastic A to Z searchable area, as does Better Health Victoria, mm-hmm. which is the Victorian government medical website. And you can search all, not only eye problems, but all medical Diseases. The College of Ophthalmologists, RANZCO, R A N Z C O. EDU, under the section for patients, they have a section of eye conditions with mm-hmm. some information leaflets. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like all things, if you're searching on the internet, you know, the institutionalized sites are those that are more likely to give you a broader perspective rather than those who have a commercial barrier to push.
0: Yeah, and it's easy to find things that are commercially driven these days, but as you say, you know, reputable sites are there and you've named these ones that people can go to. But also again, before they come to you or if they think there's something wrong, go to your GP or go to the optometrist. And I know optometrists do quite an extensive testing too, when you're going in to maybe look for glasses. And then if they see something they can refer to you.
1: Correct, so the optometrist will normally do eye screening as we sort of discussed earlier. They're going to check the health of your eyes as well as organize your glasses.
0: So the optometrist and the GP, probably your first point of call. And yeah, go and see them because there's nothing to really be worried about. The thing to worry about is not doing something. Oh, it's always important to get checked. Yep, so Jenny, what are your three main pieces
1: of advice today, your takeaways? Well, I think we've talked a lot about sun protection in Australia that's incredibly important. So hats, sunglasses, even lubricating drops to help protect the eye if it's dry or irritated. Secondly, a healthy diet. The antioxidants in the diet so important. And obviously don't smoke. Oh, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thirdly,
1: have the regular eye checks. Make sure that if there's something you're unaware of that it's picked up early and can be managed.
0: Yeah, and your eyes can give you some indication that you need to see someone, but not always, as you indicated with glaucoma. It's often undetected.
1: Yeah, so asymptomatic disease, which glaucoma is the sneak thief of sight. It's devastating to have someone arrive in your surgery who has very bad visual loss from close to end stage glaucoma and were not aware that they had a problem.
0: Yeah, and I think don't be afraid. You know, if you procrastinate and put things off, It can be worse in the long run. Actually, acting and doing something about it is much more sensible advice.
1: Well, we all know that preventative maintenance is everything.
0: Well, Dr. Jenny Danks, Jenny from Peninsula Eye Centre in DY, thank you for giving us your time today. I know how busy you are. You spend many days in surgery and in your own practice. And I know you give a lot to the community and your patients. So it's wonderful that you've given me the time today so that we can share this with the audience.
1: It's very kind of you to invite me, Karen. You're welcome. So
0: this is Ageing Fearlessly and until next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Ageing Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice.
5: The sun is shining bright outside There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all time to find It's a wonderful night. Let's go and climb mountains high, swim across oceans wide, live out our dreams, just you and me, let your heart be alive, there's no time to waste, gotta go get the most out of time.